uh, because we're going to just talk about that need for mercy. You know, we just sang that song, His Mercy is More, and I'm so glad it is because we all do need that mercy. I know in 2018, in fact, a, a prominent pastor of a well-known megachurch had to resign over allegations of sexual misconduct. And many in the Christian world were shocked because this pastor had been very influential through his books he had written, through conferences he had hosted, and through associations of churches that he had led. And though this particular pastor wasn't one of my favorite ones to listen to, I'd, I'd read some of his books, I knew of his philosophy, and I appreciated his ministry. I was personally stunned to hear the news and as I read the allegations because he was such a well-respected pastor. Now then, in 2019, one of the preachers that was a favorite of mine also resigned his mega church. He not only pastored but started many years earlier. This time, not over sexual allegations, but allegations of abuse of power and other things. His resignation not only personally stunned me, but hurt a little deeper because I was personally so blessed by his preaching. It was disheartening to see what appeared to be the apparent fall of someone who had been influential in my life. Now, I share those two incidents for this reason. I want to set the stage for what we're going to look at today, to look at those who have fallen and how to be restored. The fact that these two men that I've alluded to were large influential pastors of churches, it's a reminder to us that no one is perfect and no one is immune to temptation and no one is beyond the possibility of sin. You know, sometimes I think we forget that. I think we believe that there's some people that's beyond sin. Sometimes I think there's certain people that no way they're going to fall. In fact, last week we talked about how the people of Israel asked for a king. This request followed the commentary at the end of Judges. You all remember this because in the Judges, it ended this way. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so the, the people asked for a king. Now, I, I believe there was somewhat a feeling among the people of this that somehow they believed that if they had a king, that was the answer to all their problems. I mean, if they just had the right king, not only would everything be great, but everyone would do right. If the people just had the, the right leader, they were thinking and everything would go well. Well, there's two problems with that kind of thinking. First is this, you can never make someone else responsible for your actions. You aware of that? All right. You have to take responsibility for yourselves. And then second, hear this, no one is perfect, so there's no perfect person that can lead you perfectly. You got that? It didn't take Israel too long to figure this out. In fact, remember, we saw last week that God honored Israel's request for a king. Even though he wanted to be their sole king, God said, okay, I'll honor your request, all right? God not only even gave them a king, but this is what he also did. He worked in Saul's life to give him a new heart. In other words, God worked to help Saul be a good king. Yet what happened? Saul disobeyed God and lost the right to be king. After Saul, we can see where then God picked David to be Israel's next king because David was a man after God's own heart. I mean, no one better to be king than David. Yet what do we see in David? David also failed. Their failures may seem stunning to us, but neither should surprise us knowing this, that no one is perfect. Now, I mentioned the failure of both Saul and David, and we could go on with the list of the failures of future kings. However, my desire today is not to dwell on the failures, but instead to look at how does one find restoration after failure? Some may even want to ask the question, can one really find restoration after failure? Well, today we're clearly going to answer that question. Turn in 2 Samuel, if you haven't already, to chapter 12. 
Now, chapter 11, here's what chapter 11 does to set the scene. Chapter 11 recounts the infamous episode of David's life where he commits adultery with Bathsheba. He gets her pregnant and then has Uriah, her husband, killed in battle and then takes Bathsheba to be his wife. Now, if you're not familiar with these events, go read them later this afternoon. Because anyone who reads what David did has to be disgusted at what happened. In fact, I would go as far as to say this, that anyone who reads what David did and reflects on his action somewhat has to have a feeling that says this, that David has to be one of the worst people that ever lived. Yet when you read all of David's life story, you know this, that he was a man who loved God a man who often defended the name of God, a man that had much to be admired until this incident happened. David is the prime example of someone that you look at and say, I cannot believe he did what he did. We wonder how could someone so godly do such a horrible thing? His failure leaves us stunned. Well, this is where we pick it up at the start of chapter 12. And the opening words say so much to us. Look at them with me, all right? Verse 1, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. We're going to pause right there. I want us to stop after these few opening words and notice something that we might just quickly read over if you're reading through the text. That is that God was reaching out to David, all right? What we see here in these verses in chapter 12 is not just Nathan going to David, but it is God working through Nathan. It is God who has sent Nathan to go to David. David was God's king for Israel. David had been a man after God's own heart. And just because he fell didn't mean that God wanted to be done with him as we might think. In fact, just the opposite is true. God wanted to reach out to David and restore him. Now, see, that's a big deal. In fact, it's something that we must all never forget. If you think that your failure has made you unusable by God or unlovable to God, then read David's story. God didn't give up on David, and he didn't turn his back on David just because he had failed. God reached out to David because he loved him, he cared for him, and he wanted to restore him. All right, let's keep reading. All right, he came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up and grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man and said to Nathan, as the Lord live, the man who has done this deserves to die and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, you are the man. Now what we see here is Nathan being one who loved God enough and cared enough about David to confront David with his sin. Have you ever thought about this? I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Go, go, go read chapter 11 into chapter 12. And have you ever thought about this? Where was all of David's friends who were telling him he was wrong? Where was all of his advisors in this moment who looked and said, David, you, what you've done is wrong. Where were those who were the closest to him in confronting him with his sin? It seems like those who were closest to David had turned a blind eye to what was going on. I mean, maybe they were afraid of him as king. Or maybe they were like so many of us. They just didn't like conflict. And so they avoided the difficult conversation. 
But there was no one to this point who had confronted David with his sin. And keep this in mind. At this point of start of chapter 12, probably a year has gone by, right? About a year. We at least know nine months. Why? Because chapter 11 ends with Bathsheba, all right, giving birth to the child. And so we know it's at least been nine months. And in those nine months, there has been silence. Nobody has been talking to David. His closest friends, his closest advisors, no one had confronted him with what has happened. I'm going to say this, folks. That is a tragedy of its own. There should have been some amens to that, all right? It is a tragedy of his own. But here we see Nathan, sent by God, was willing to do what no one else had done. He was willing to look David in the eye and say, you are the man. You are the one who has done such evil. You see, Nathan is to be admired for his love for both God and David. A love for God that was willing to carry such a difficult message, but a love for David that cared enough to tell him the hard truth. You see, after Nathan goes on to give words from the Lord showing fully David's sin, it becomes clear that David's eyes are open to what he has done. And here we might wonder, I mean, was David really blind to what his sin? Was he really blind to what he has done? I'm going to say yes. Why? Because David's like us, because we are blind often to our own sin, are we not? In the midst of it, we become blind to what we are doing. Think about this. Alcoholics have a hard time recognizing they have a drinking problem, right? Shopaholics have a hard time realizing they have a buying problem. Maybe a charging problem too, right? It goes along with that sometimes. Gossips have a hard time seeing that they have a tongue problem, right? No matter what your sin is, I could go on this morning. I'm going to pause there. I'm not. But whatever your problem is, here's where we all find ourselves. Often when we are in sin and we're doing wrong, we are blind to it. So David, yes, he was blind to his own sin. But in this moment, all right, having Nathan spoken the truth to him, here's what we see. David has no more excuses and, and, and now that he is aware, we, we see that David now, making no excuses, now has a proper response to being confronted with his sin. Look at verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. See, what we see in David's confession here is this, he's confessing his sin to the Lord. Like I said, we don't see any excuses. There's no blaming what has happened on anyone else. David clearly and specifically says, I have sinned against the Lord. In just a few moments, I will make it clear how we know David was sincere. But God knew David's heart, and God was receptive to David's confession. And we know that because of Nathan's next words. Look at what he says. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Look at this, folks. Immediately, God's response to David's confession was a response of grace. Think about this. No doubt, David deserved to die for what he'd done, did he not? Go ahead and shake your head this way. Why? David's actions took Uriah's life, and it would, truly would have been fair if God had said, a life for a life. David, you have taken Uriah's life, and so now, David, I'm going to take your life. God would have been right in doing that, but that is not what God did. Nathan made it clear that David's sins had been forgiven, and as a result, his life would be spared. In other words, what we see is this, God's grace comes shining through. Let's, though, recognize something. Just because David, or God forgave David did not mean that all the consequences of his sin are wiped away. 
This becomes clear as Nathan goes on to tell David this. He says, nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. You see, David's sin did come with a hefty price. His life would be spared, but the child conceived in his sin would die. Consequently, we can read that the child did become sick and eventually did die. Now, when I look at David's response to his child's sickness and subsequent death, I appreciate first this. He didn't get mad at God. David knew in this case he had sinned, and he is the one who'd caused this tragedy. I also appreciate, though, that David fasted and prayed for his child the entire time he was sick. He didn't complain to God. But at the same time, he didn't do this. At the same time, he didn't say, oh, well, just so be it, God. All right, that, that, that's your consequences, and so I'm just going to take them. It's okay, my do that. No, what did David do? He pleaded for his child. He pleaded that that child might live. However, when the child did die, David got up, and he moved on with life. And I love that the Scriptures record the servants questioning why David acted the way he did. And here was David's response. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Here's what David knew. Ready? David knew that God was a God of grace. And so he knew it was within the realm of possibility that God would spare his child. You see what I'm saying? David didn't just say, okay, God, I hear it. I'm not mad at you. I hear what you're saying, so I'm going to accept it. He said, listen, God is so gracious, maybe he will even spare this consequence. And so he begged for his child. Therefore, it says, David sought out God in the matter. But in the end, here's what we have to see, that David trusted God. When the child died, David was able to get up and go about serving the Lord because he knew at this point that he had done all that he could do and trusted that in his sovereignty that God had done what was right. Sometimes, folks, let's say this. All right, let's admit this. Sometimes God's actions are hard for us to understand, but we must trust that he always does what is right. Now, that's exactly what David did, even though I'm sure the death of his son was painful. But as David got up and moved forward in life, we can read that he comforted his wife Bathsheba, and we see that they have another child. This child is one we are familiar with because his name is, some of you know that, his name is Solomon, who would become the next king of Israel. And what I want us to see, though, is that the Scripture records this about God's response to Solomon's birth. Look at verse 24 and 25. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. And just so we're clear what's happening here, know this. The name Jedidiah means beloved of the Lord. Beloved of the Lord. We should see in Solomon's birth and God's reaction that God here is expressing his love for David. All right, It is God saying to David, you are forgiven, you are loved you are restored. You may have failed, but you repented, and I have forgiven you. Now go and serve me again. It is not a mistake or an accident or a coincidence that these words are recorded for us in Scripture. They are there to remind us, folks, that God does restore after failure. Hallelujah. Right? Hallelujah. 
We ought to, we ought to be, there ought to even make a Baptist shout, okay? That God restores after failure. And folks, God's plan is unbroken. He is still restoring lives today. Think about this. I don't know how you respond to what we've seen this morning. But as we look at David's life, we get a great picture of who God is and his desire for us. We also get a picture of our great need. So let's take a few moments to analyze this event in David's life a little closer. And let's consider the lessons that we must make sure that we don't overlook and what we need to do in response to David's experience. And the first thing that we need to do in response to David's experience is this, is that we need to recognize the need for grace universally, all right? Recognize the need for grace universally. Now, I'll admit, I've worded this particular point to fit well with all the others, okay? And so let me simply explain what I'm meaning. We all need grace. There's no one perfect, so all stand in need and at some point in time of forgiveness. Most know by now the verse in Romans 3.23, don't you? You should. It's been quoted often enough. For for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, most of you have heard that verse enough. It's been quoted enough. But here's what I hope. I hope it's sealed in your heart. It needs to be sealed there in part because there will be people in your life who will mess up, and you shouldn't be surprised. I mentioned one of my favorite preachers who had resigned his church last year. That was disappointing to me. But my faith shouldn't be shaken because of it. My, My faith shouldn't be shaken because if David, a man after God's own heart, can mess up, guess what? Anyone can. Even one of my favorite preachers who I believe has a heart for God can mess up. There will be people very close to you that disappoint you. Let me say, that shouldn't shake your faith. They are not, all right? They are not God. And because they are not God, everyone in your life at some point will disappoint you. You hear me? I want you to understand that everyone at some point needs God's grace so that when those in your realm of influence mess up, you can help restore them. I want you to be in a place where you don't just cast them aside. You know what we do in our day and time when people disappoint us or make us mad? You know what we do today? We cancel them. Isn't that the term of the day? We cancel them. We're living in the day of cancel culture. And so when one disappoints us, it leads people to completely withdraw from whoever disappointed them or made them mad or however you describe that failure. I'm going to go ahead and tell you that should not be. All right, let me make this observation, and I think I got this point coming up on the screen. When you simply cancel someone or fail to give forgiveness to someone who has messed up, you are failing to recognize your own need for grace. Let that sink in for a bit, right? Since y'all didn't amen, I'm going to let you marinate on it, okay? When you fail to do that, when you just cancel somebody and you fail to give forgiveness or someone who's messed up, you fail to recognize your own need for grace. The fact that we all universally fail and will need our own grace, it should compel us to forgive and to restore others who have fallen. You see, I hope you recognize your need so that you will forgive others. But I also hope you'll recognize your need so that you will listen to correction willingly. We made note moments ago that when Nathan came and confronted David with his sin, he immediately recognized that sin. He didn't get mad at Nathan for what he had shared. 
He didn't make excuses. He listened to Nathan and accepted Nathan's rebuke from the Lord. Now, if you want, you can do this. Go back to Saul, who had previously failed in his role as king. He, too, was confronted with his failure, but he handled it differently. In fact, go back to 1 Samuel 13. We're not going to look at it. You can read it later. And you can see where Samuel confronts Saul with his failure. And instead of recognizing his sin, you know what Saul does in that moment? Anybody know? He starts making excuses. He starts excusing, he starts excusing his actions away. He wanted to justify what he was had done. He didn't say, oh, I've messed up. I've sinned against the Lord. He began to make excuses. He says, oh, this is why I did it. Here's why. And he tried to justify that. And because of that, folks, here's what we need to know about Saul. The consequences was great. Saul never recovered as a person and as a leader. The kingdom gets taken from him, and Saul at one point even loses his mind. Failing to listen to correction, folks, can have devastating effects in your life. As we look at this point of listen to correction willingly, I'm reminded of the proverb that says this in Proverbs 27, 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. In other words, a friend will tell you the truth even when it hurts. Amen? When an enemy will only tell you what you want to hear. Every one of of us needs to, to, to be open to those close to us to come to us and say, you've messed up. Or I see something in your life that concerns me. Or when they say, you are wrong. We need to listen to those close to us because if they really care about us, they will tell us the truth. All right, they will confront us with our sin and failure. We, in fact, should willingly listen because if they are bringing those things to our attention, they are doing it for our good. Because I don't know even any true friend who enjoys pointing out failures. They don't enjoy it. So why do they do it? Because they love you and care, all right? Now, some enemies, if if they don't mind, they might enjoy it because they like making people feel bad, right? But your friend's not going to enjoy it. But if they love you enough, they will confront you. True friends will do it in a way that show they care but also they care enough to deal with a difficulty. Willingly receive correction. It's an important part of our lives. Now, as you consider receiving correction, you need to know that this next part should go with it. Confess sin sincerely. I mentioned a few moments ago that when Saul was confronted with his sin, that he made excuses while David didn't. Well, and you might ask me this question. Well, preacher, you tell me. How do you know that David wasn't just saying the words to get out of trouble? How come he was one saying what he thought Nathan wanted him to hear? Well, we know because of this, we have recorded David's reaction. It's Psalm 51. It's a psalm written by David as the title says, if you go and read in the scripture, it's titled, When Nathan the Prophet Went to Him. And so we know these words were written specifically as a response to Nathan confronting him. And I'm not going to read all of them, but listen to these just these few verses. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to abundant abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression, and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. You see, there's no doubt that these words are sincere confessions. This is a cry for mercy, a cry for cleansing, a clear acknowledgement of fault, and most importantly, a recognition that he had done wrong in God's sight and that he had sinned against God. 
God. See, David understood. See, David the depth understood of the depth of the and he was making. And he was making. I wonder how often we have been that we have been that honest with God about us. How often have we been? How often have we been that? Probably I would say this. Probably I would say this. We probably haven't been often or honest often enough, have we? We have to cover it up. We like to ignore it. Too often we've made excuses. Too often we've tried to blame others or we've tried to blame our circumstances for what we've done. Too often we don't even see our part in our mistakes. We all need to open our eyes to our sin so that we might take it sincerely before God saying, God, it is me. I messed up and I need your mercy. Now, as part of this, I want us also to be where David was at the end. Look at verse four again in Psalm 51. He says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David articulated something that we already saw him demonstrate earlier and something we must do as well, accept consequences humbly. You see, when David proclaimed that God was justified in his words and blameless in his judgment, he was truly accepting that whatever consequences God sent his way, he knew that God was right to send them or to allow them to happen. He knew he couldn't be mad at God because he had earned any negative consequences that came his way. He wasn't rejoicing in those things, but he knew that he couldn't be mad at God, which is so important. A person cannot move forward in life if you're mad at God. Y'all know that? If you're mad at God, you're not gonna move forward in life. Let's remember, though, this, that God is a God of grace. And because of this, if any one of us got what we deserved, it would be death, right? Go ahead and shake your hands. I want to make sure y'all with me. Y'all should be wide awake today. You got an extra hour of sleep last night, right? All right. If any one of us got what we deserved, it was death. And so can I say this? If you're still alive, and I think all of you are, right? You are experiencing God's grace, which means you have much more to be thankful for than you have to be upset about. We can pray like David did that some consequences wouldn't come about, and I think that's okay. I think it's okay as a believer. Lord, would you spare me? Lord, would you, would you not let this happen? It's okay. But we do need to accept them humbly when they come and move on, knowing that God knows what is right. In fact, that moves me to this last point, because once we can do that, then we receive God's restoration gratefully. Where God ultimately wants us to go, get is to being restored. I mean, that's what David hoped for. Listen to some more of his words from Psalm 51, back starting in verse 7 this time. As David cried out to God, he said, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be cleansed. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your way and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Amen. Listen, David longed for that restoration. He wanted to have joy again. He wanted to sing of God's righteousness. 
As I mentioned earlier, when we look at God's reaction to Solomon's birth, I believe we clearly see that God was declaring David's restoration. God responded to David's sincere repentance because that is God's heart. Uh, And God's plans are unbroken, as I said. And because of that, God wants to restore the fallen today. We need to remember this, that something special happens through the line of David. All right? Y'all know this, right? God had made a promise to David that there would always be someone of his line that was sitting on the throne of Israel. All right? He sinned. God could have looked and said, David, no more. Because of your sin, it is over. But God did have someone who sat on his throne and someone who's still on that throne today who is a descendant of David. Who is that person? It's none other than the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It's none other than Jesus. It's getting close to Christmas. And in the Christmas story, we hear of Joseph being from the house and the lineage of David. God not only forgave David, but through David's line came the Savior of the world, our hope of restoration. 2 Corinthians 4 makes this clear when we read these words. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He's a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are his ambassadors. We are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the what? The righteousness of God. There in those verses, you see the heart of God. He wants to make you new. He wants you to be reconciled to him. He doesn't want to count your sins against you. He wants you to have his righteousness and to become his ambassadors to the world. Since this is God's heart, you can know that if you have failed, you can be sure that God wants to restore you. What is the key? The key is found in the words that Peter shared when asked by the crowd what they needed to do. After hearing about Jesus and hearing the story, what do we need to do? And Peter looked back at the crowd and he said this to them. He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There it is. Repentance and faith is key, all right? Repentance and faith in Christ is what we need, amen? Even think about this. I told you about these two preachers. I'm thankful that one that was my favorite at this point in time, he came out publicly and admitted his fault. He admitted that he had done wrong, that he had acted foolishly and did those things. And he's been working through a process with his former church to find to bring reconciliation. Now, do I believe he's ever going to pastor that church again? I don't believe he is. But here's the good news. He appears to be in the process of being restored. So again, he can at least proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And I hope that happens. Why? Because I enjoyed listening to it. I'm ready to listen again. I say, preach the word, brother, and I'm glad you're restored. If you take those steps, I'm glad you can be restored because God doesn't cast us aside. All right? Now, there are some here this morning. Let's say this. You have never given your life to Jesus Christ. Truth is, Jesus gave his life for you. 
He hadn't sinned. He had no need to confess. But what he did was take your consequences of death when he hung on a cross as a sinless man, and he died a death for you. He died that death for me. Three days later, he rose again to prove he had the power over death, hell, and a grave, that he had the power to forgive sins. And this is what I know, that if you will repent of your sins, and that means you confess your wrong, and it also means that you're going to turn from that wrong, and you place your faith in Jesus, that God will forgive you and give you a new life. He will restore you. Some today need to come and confess Jesus as your Lord and be baptized in his name. Or there are others here today that you might say this. Well, I've already been baptized. I'm already a believer. I know that, but I have failed. I got good news for you. Repentance is available for you today also in Jesus. You may have even failed as a believer, but you know what, folks? I'm here to tell you, God's ready to restore you. He is ready to restore that salvation. You may not need to be saved today because you're already saved in Christ. But today, your relationship has been broken in a way because of sin, but God's ready to restore that afresh and anew. If you as a believer will come once again and say, God, I have sinned, will you restore me today? Because I want the joy of my salvation to return again, and the sin has squelched that. The good news is today that God is ready to restore you this morning. And we're going to move to a time of invitation. And we're going to sing a song that says, Oh, come to the altar. And I want you to know this altar is open for you. Some of you might need to, to kneel here, all right? We've got these nice cushy pads right here on the floor so you don't have to kneel on the concrete, right? You can come right here and kneel and go before the Lord and say, God, i got something to confess to you. And I believe today if you'll come with a sincere heart that God is ready this morning to meet you here. And maybe today my words were like the words of Nathan. Maybe I'm the one that God has sent to you that you could hear and understand. Yes, I have sinned and I've been covering it up. I've been excusing it up. And today is the day you're gonna say no more. Well, why not come to God and let today be the day that you're restored? Or maybe today you're that person again. Your sin is before you. You've never given your life to Jesus. Would you come today and give your life to him? I'm excited. We've got a couple of baptisms that we're getting ready to celebrate here at South Wilson in the weeks ahead. We're excited about that, all right? Maybe there needs to be more. If you today have never confessed Christ, you've never been baptized in his name, today, today has come. In fact, I'm going to come here. I'll put my mask on so we'll be safe. I'll be glad to talk to you this morning about how you can give your life to Jesus because today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to be restored in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come to you in these moments today and thanking you that you are a God that restores you are a God that restores the fallen. And we're thankful for that, God, because every one of us in this room knows what it means to be fallen, know what it is to make a mistake, know what it is to do something that has broken your heart. And for us who are believers, God, we're thankful that we were able to receive Christ and be restored. But Father, even us, sometimes we know we've failed and we need to come again, God, and be, be you know, renewed in our relationship with you. And so, Father, this morning, whatever the need is in this place, I pray that your spirit will move and folks will come. 
Even those who are listening online, maybe there are some there that, that need you today and they, they need to kneel right there in their living rooms or wherever they find themselves today. They need to kneel and cry out to you. God, I'm thankful that your message can go out even across the internet and across the airwaves that, that people can know you, not even in this room, but they can know you even from around the world. So Father, today, would you just speak in these moments? If there's one that needs Christ, that this be the day they come and they give their life to you. Again, if even one of yours who has fallen needs to be restored, I pray they'll kneel before you today, cry out, and be restored. And God, in this moment, I pray that we'll find healing because you are a God of restoration. You're a God who restores the falling. Move in these moments, I pray, and I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.